Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This week, Brandon Duke and I are going to critique Samuel Nassan's opening statement in his recent debate over the question, Is Jesus Yahweh? Nissan has a Master of Christian Studies at Seminari Theologi Malaysia and another Master's of Theology from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is currently pursuing a Ph.D. at Southwestern. He served as a pastor, speaker, and apologist. He's the co-founder of Explain International, a ministry seeking to equip the church to accurately articulate and defend the Christian faith. In our episode today, we'll play out sections of Nissan's opening statement and respond. Here now is episode 492, refuting Samuel Nissan's case that Jesus is Yahweh, with Brandon Duke. Welcome back, Brandon Duke. To talk on Restitutio today. Sorry, I just love to say your last name that way. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Sean. <laughs> we were talking about this incredible debate. Real interesting guys. Uh, seem like some godly men that are, you know, honestly seeking for the truth. And we had gone through Kyle's opening statement, offered some critique, some thought last time. And today we're going to look at what Samuel has to say. And uh, of the two, Samuel seemed like he was a little bit more confident in his case. And so I, I'm looking forward to uh, to working through this. Yeah, me, me too. Although that's interesting because my reaction is to be much more interested in what Kyle had to say than what Samuel had to say. <laughs> and I think they contradict each other too because we'll see when, when Samuel starts making arguments that Jesus is God based on John 20, 28, my Lord and my God, after Kyle has explicitly said that the use of the word God can be used of human agents, Think they're think they were stepping on each other's toes there unintentionally. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be interesting to listen through again. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, Kyle had clearly made the point: people can be called gods. It doesn't mean that they are deity in that top shelf definition, that premium category. All right, well, let's get to it. Thank you, Kyle. Really appreciate that. Uh, I will move on to our second argument uh, in this debate, and that is going to be the argument from explicit passages. Now, the purpose of this argument is to demonstrate, of course, that the scriptures in plain terms teach that Jesus is Yahweh. The first passage we'll be looking at is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, although I'll focus specifically on verses 10 to 11. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, Yahweh declares, quote, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, end quote. Uh, by the way, the uh, Septuagint reading of that same passage reads, quote, every tongue shall confess, uh, end quote. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that and expounds on that in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, saying that, quote, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does Paul mean by Lord? Well, if we allow scripture to interpret scripture, it clearly means that Jesus is Yahweh. Okay. What do you think? I'm still waiting for an explicit passage. This whole <laughs> this whole topic is rather hampered by the lack of Yahweh references in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, that's that's such a shame. But uh, we know that behind some of the lords, some of the word the time usages of the word Kyrios, uh, that Kyrios is really standing in for the word Yahweh. And so uh, I'm not too strict with him on that because you can find plenty of Old Testament quoted in the New Testament where it's Yahweh in the Old Testament and it's Lord in the New Testament. But I just don't really see it here in Philippians 2.6. The, the one he's quoting here is uh, verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is how he's reading that. I mean, it says Lord, but the question right. is, does Lord mean master in like a generic right. sense, or is it standing in for Yahweh here? I guess right. he's reading that as Yahweh, that yeah. Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. It yep. just sounds 
so weird reading it that way because it yeah. seems like the point is that he's a secondary, lower-level individual to God who is then yep. elevated to yep. this to this position. But even in his elevation, it's to the glory of the one who's above him that put him up that high. Yeah, I think that's a more natural reading. Yeah, it's it's really strange. I mean, as a Trinitarian, I guess I'd have to say that what's being done here is in elevating Jesus and elevating the second person of the Trinity, really it's not an elevating, it's just making people aware of his already God status or something. And all these passages where God exalts Jesus, where Jesus goes from some status to some other status by God doing it to him, like the second person of the Trinity has nothing more to gain. He's supposed to be full deity. <laughs> yeah. So what what's happening here, guys? Like, is is this just a uh, making people aware that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity in a hypostatic union? Like, yeah. I think only if you had a real kenosis theory could that yeah. work, and that's yeah. been considered heresy. Yeah. So I don't think these guys right. are going to hold any kind of legit kenosis that he ceased being God in some sense. Yeah, kenosis is rejected for good reasons, right? Because all the things that he'd be laying down are, are things he is essentially, to mm. quote a philosophical term. They're things that can't be set aside. <laughs> so yeah, kenosis doesn't make sense logically, biblically, and you know, or philosophically. Or yeah. Philosoph- yeah, yeah, not um, if the Trinity is so, true. Yeah, because yeah, it's supposed to be of the same essence as the Father. Right. I don't know how to help him with this passage because it, it. I don't think it helps him. I think it helps us uh, explain. Jesus's humility and his human life and his exaltation by God who's someone other than him. Yeah. If it's a, it's a different person, everybody agrees on that between Unitarian and Trinitarian, uh, at least in the context of you and me talking here and then those guys. Uh, I know there are Unitarians who think Jesus just is the Father, but I'm kind of holding them to the side here. What about this Isaiah 45, 23? This is another text that James White and those who follow his material do use from time to time, I've seen. It says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. I guess the contention is that Philippians 2.11 is directly quoting this from the Septuagint. Yeah, which I, I mean, my instinct is to see it as maybe a fulfillment of prophecy that where God does that through through someone else, maybe. Yeah. In the Greek, it says, and every tongue will confess that, and then it says, Lord Jesus Christ. It's translated as Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me just pull up the Isaiah one real quick while we're here. Yeah, I mean, it's not really it's not really the same verbiage. It's not like uh, exact is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so in that case, what we have to do is say that this is an illusion it's not exact, but it's pretty close. I mean, you could find three of the same words, sure. <laughs> but uh, that's just how you say every tongue confess. So here are two things. One, as Dustin and Will pointed out during this debate, my first point is this. When we find a quotation or an allusion to the Old Testament in the New Testament, we shouldn't woodenly impose upon it the same context of its original setting and say that that's what the New Testament is picking up on. Sometimes that's the case. Many times that's the case. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the New Testament is giving it a new understanding in light of Christ. And I think that's what's going on here, is that God is giving to Christ this same level of respect. Because really, taking the knee here, I think, refers to respect or adoration. You know, you could even say religious worship. This is being given to Jesus, something that was already being given to God. Yeah, I, I can yeah. I can agree to all that as a Unitarian, no problem at all, because God authorized it. I say, Jesus doesn't you know? possess the name innately the way the second person would have. He has it because God gave it to him. I really struggle with all these, with Trinitarian proof texts that where the human Jesus gets something that the divine second person already had that doesn't make sense so let me just summarize the greek is not identical and right, i'm looking at the two side by side it's not identical it's not the same word order there's a letter different between one use of the word uh will confess and the other one 
you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's close. It's very similar. Okay. I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but I'm saying even if it were the exact same words as a Septuagint, where it was clearly a quotation, you had more than three words to work with and they were in the right order and it was clear. Even if that were the case, God is still allowed to sovereignly decide to give the honor of everyone bowing the knee to somebody to somebody else. He's still allowed yep. to do that. It does not yep. mean that that individual is himself ontologically of the same substance as the Father, ontologically God or deity or divine. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And it doesn't seem to be that that's the point Paul's making. I mean, we've got a big U-shape here. We've got going down and then coming up and going up higher than where he started from. Yep, That's what it seems to be saying here. I, I totally agree. Any way that you read Philippians 2 it ends up being a way that Christ gets exalted to someplace new, not to someplace that the second person had always been or something like that. Yeah. All right. So that's it for Philippians 2. If the Apostle Paul is using this line here to teach this truth, assuming it is true, which I don't think it is, uh, that Jesus is Yahweh, I think most people would miss it. This is kind of like the Palach argument. It's like only some very few specialists would be like, oh, yeah, serve must mean to God because it's only used that way nine other times. Like, who knows that information? Like, nobody, okay? Yeah. Um, and then it's too subtle, in other words. And then in verse 11 here, it's like, okay, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like, the emphasis of the sentence is that it's to God the yeah. Father. The big point here is not like, and that's why he's Yahweh. You know what I mean? Like, that just right. doesn't seem to be what's happening yeah. here. Confess, yeah, that, that everyone confess he is Lord so that he is rightly identified as the second person of the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. Th that's, that's I think, how Samuel is using this verse, but it's not what it says. Let's see what else he has to say here. Uh, that's the first passage. The second passage uh, is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Uh, Dr. Carl Esseri just appointed to the Shema. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which teaches the Lord our God is one. And the Apostle Paul alludes to that, certainly, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, when he says, quote, there is no God but one, end quote. And so when he further expounds on the Shema, we see him distinguishing Lord and God, attributing the title God to the Father, and Lord, which is Yahweh in the Shema, to Jesus. He says, quote, yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom, uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And as Dr. Carl pointed out earlier, the creator-creature distinction forces us to, in this text, recognize that Jesus belongs in the creator category. And hence, quite explicitly, the scriptures teach Jesus is Yahweh. This is one of my favorite Unitarian proof text. <laughs> I mean, it says that the one God is the Father. So, like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I get what he's saying is is that this is supposedly claiming Jesus is involved in the original creation, which it doesn't say. It can't be and read so, that way, though. Let me let me read the verse because I don't think Samuel even read it. Did he? No, he didn't. All right, this is yep. what it says. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so the phrase, from whom are all things, tapanta, the phrase there, all things, is understood to be creation. All yep. things in creation. So from Plants him. And sticks and stones and right. So, all so from things. him must be saying that he's the creator of all things. But then it says for Jesus, it doesn't say from him, it says through him, through whom are, are all things. Uh, so the yeah, Justin Martyr would love that. <laughs> yeah, he'd love that reading, you know, where the logos is the agent of creation. But I remember one time doing a search for Tapanta in in Paul and just looking at all the places that Paul says all things mm -hmm. and looking at all the different references for all things that he uses. There's tons. It's it's all the authorities, or it's all the members of the local church, or it's all the it's always all the things. In this subcategory that we're talking about, <laughs> yeah. it's never like all things in a universal sense. I, I I don't remember finding one place where Paul says all things meaning like all material and space and time or something like that. Yeah. 
I just don't think it's a creation reference. I think it's I think it's a new creation. The through whom we live, for whom and through whom we live is the interesting part to me. Not just where the things came from. It's how we're supposed to be living. If memory serves, I'm looking at the rest of the chapter. It's in the context of eating. <laughs> like, how do we live? Eating how idle, do we yeah, function? Idle food. You know? It's not in the context of some metaphysical analysis of the whole universe. I don't get it as a Trinitarian passage unless you're you're just willing to say, ah, it's a creation verse and Jesus was involved in that. Yeah. I think if Paul were Trinitarian, which he evidently isn't, but if the Apostle Paul were Trinitarian, we would read something like this. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, the Son from whom are all things, the Spirit from whom are all things, making it clear that there's oneness and threeness. But that's not how it reads at all. You've got one God, the Father. I mean, that's got to be awkward. Yeah. If you think one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and here it just says one God, the Father, and then one Lord, Jesus Christ. And the word Lord here is, it means a master, a superior. It means boss, sir. It's yeah. a word with a big range, in other words. Yep. And, you know, to say that the word Lord here means Yahweh is to read... Deuteronomy 6.4 into 1 Corinthians 8.6. And there's just not enough of the same words here to do that. Hero right. Israel. Okay, the word here is not here. The word O is not here. The word Israel is not here. The Lord our God. It doesn't say our God anywhere in verse 6. The Lord is one. Okay, so it's we've got the word no, one, God. Lord, and God. So we've got three words in common, and we're going to say that's what's behind the scenes, and and we're splitting the Shema, and you know we're taking the first half and putting it to the Father, and the second half put it to the Son. And, and even if that's the case, which I don't think it is, I don't think there's just enough evidence for that. I recognize that you can see that if you want to see it, but it's not it's not jumping out at me. Even if that were the case, it's still not Trinitarian. Where's the Spirit, man? Yeah. Why is Paul such totally. a bad Trinitarian? <laughs> yeah, what's Paul's deal with this, with leaving what? out the spirit all the time? Yeah, he's not making it easy yep. at all. And remember, these are supposed to be explicit passages that teach that Jesus is Yahweh. Yeah, oh, well, he, he'll get to some better ones. He'll get some. I think he's using weak and then going to stronger ones. Yeah. So we got Philippians, First Corinthians eight six. Yeah, what's what's next? All right, let's see. Paul is not the only one to do this. In Jude one four, uh, the apostle writes. Uh, calling, referring to Jesus as, quote, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, end quote. And so when we allow scripture to speak for itself, uh, we see that the scriptures in plain terms, explicit terms, call Jesus Lord. Did he say it in explicit terms, it calls Jesus Lord? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. But that's not what you're wanting to say, Samuel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me just read that out. Jude Jude 4, Jude 1, 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so uh, I guess he's saying here that... We split in the Shema again? That where we've got uh, the God word Lord here should be Yahweh. We should read it as Yahweh. Our only Master and Yahweh, Jesus Christ. It's like... Is that really what you're saying here, Samuel? It seems like he's just reading that in. Yeah. Well, and he used that as support for his reading of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, I think. Well, he's what he just mentioning said. them together, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he says more, yeah. Let's see what he says. Yeah, many other passages like this, such as, of course, as you most of us would know, uh, Thomas' confession about Jesus being hokoriosmo, hoteosmo, uh, my Lord and my God. But we, we won't have time to expound on that. Well, I, I want to bite on that. Yeah. <laughs> so John twenty twenty eight, he Jesus is called my Lord and my God. When it says my Lord there, which is really his focus, it's not the my God side, it's the my Lord side. He's saying that that's Yahweh. But here's the thing. Yahweh is never called my Yahweh. Mm. That's Adoni, right? That's that's the idea of my, my Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. Or he's Adonai, which is a little complicated in Hebrew because it's kind of a, a plural with a singular meaning. But uh, he's not called my Lord. And so if Jesus is called my Lord, it's almost like a way of saying he's not Yahweh. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> More than it is saying that he is Yahweh. His debate partner, as you already mentioned, Kyle, 
already clearly said that humans can be called God if they represent God. Yeah. I mean, if I were in a debate and that verse came up, I would. that's what I'd point out. I'm like, it's fine for him to be called my Lord and my God, kind of like it would be for David or somebody else that God authorizes. And, you know, there's Unitarians, too, that are going to say, I mean, I've made this argument before that arguably that's addressing him and addressing the God that's in him, you know, going back to chapter 14. I'm okay with that either way. Neither neither reading works for the Trinitarian. Yeah. Let me add another one in just for fun. Okay. No extra charge. In the Greco-Roman world, a human who defeated death and now can walk through walls just is a God. Lowercase yeah, g, God. Yeah. It could just be that he's using kind of like the parlance of the day. I know he's Jewish, so I don't want to push it too far. But people were to some degree Hellenized in their, their usage of language he could be calling him my Lord and my God in, in this lower sense of, uh, I don't want to say divinized, but like certainly supernatural level of physical existence that he's in, in his resurrected body. The sure. category for God was huge in the Greco-Roman yeah. world. All right, on to the next thing. So it's only going to be these three passages as far as the second argument, the argument from explicit passages. Finally, in our third argument, we'll look at an argument from what I call replacement passages. Uh, now, the idea of replacement passages is that there are certain titles attributed to God in the Old Testament or certain verses, but in the New Testament, the apostles replaced that with Jesus, demonstrating that Jesus is indeed Yahweh. The first one is that Yahweh is the first and the last. In Isaiah 42, verse 11 to 12, Yahweh declares, quote, my glory I will not give to another. End quote. And he goes on to declare again, quote, I am the first and I am the last, end quote. Now, having said that he's not going to give his glory to another, uh, we should find it shocking if we deny that Jesus is Yahweh, because Jesus is going to apply the title directly to himself in Revelation 1.17. He says, quote, fear not, I am the first and the last, end quote. Now, the apostle Peter clearly, and, and I mean clearly here, explicitly well not explicitly in word for word but in his <laughs> citation of the old testament treats jesus as not just yahweh but a lot of hosts in isaiah chapter 8 verse 12 yahweh commands the inhabitants of jerusalem saying quote not to fear not fear what they fear nor be in dread but a lot of hosts him you shall honor as holy end quote now peter is going to cite that except he replaces lot of hosts with christ the lord in 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15, the apologetics proof text, Peter cites this passage and says, quote, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, end quote. And this makes it very clear that it's not just Paul that considers Jesus Yahweh or, or John uh, or, or even Jude for that matter. The apostle Peter himself substitutes the term Yahweh, a lot of hosts. For Jesus Christ. What was that text from Revelation? Did you did you grab that? Was it one seventeen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Revelation one seventeen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not. I am the first and the last. In the living room, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the death, the keys of death and Hades." So he says, because he uses the phrase first and last here, that that is Jesus co-opting a title that's used of God exclusively in Isaiah 42. When it's used of God, what do you think it means? you think it means that he's eternal? Yeah, sure. Being from everlasting to everlasting. He says this is a replacement passage. So it's Jesus claiming a title that's exclusively God's. Because Jesus uses it arguably later too, right? And mm -hmm. at the end of Revelation, he says that as well. Yeah. Like Jesus can be the first and the last in a lot of ways. What Jesus means by first and the last he says in revelation 117 we don't have to guess well i guess he says it in verse 18 he said i am the first and the living one and then he explains i died and behold i am alive forevermore yeah <laughs> he's yep. the first one raised from first the dead he's not claiming yeah. to be the first being in existence of all time he's claiming to be the first one risen from the dead and he's the ultimate. He's the last. He's he's going to be until the end. It, well, there is no end. You know, he's going to be eternal. That seems to be what he's claiming here. You know, like I know that Samuel is seeing in this, all right, well, God said these words. 
Jesus said these words. Therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God in the same way that the Father is God. Okay. Yeah. I see what he's saying. It doesn't seem to be that that's what the book of Revelation is doing. Like, I know that's what Samuel's doing. It just doesn't seem like that's a fair point to derive from this text. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Okay, that's, that's saying he was intense. He was powerful. He was to be, you know, very glorified human being, right? But he laid his right hand and saying, fear not. I am the first and the last living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write these things down. It doesn't seem to be that the, the text is making the point that he is co-equal with the Father or co-essential. Yeah. With, it doesn't seem to be what it's doing here. Yeah. All right, let's go on to the next one, which uh, I think you had a comment on. First Peter 3, 14 and 15. This one he's saying is tying into Isaiah 8, 12. So I'll pull that one up while you're going to First Peter. It says in Isaiah 8, 12, do not call conspiracy... All these people cause conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And so in 1 Peter 3.15, we, we have an allusion to this. It's not exact again. Maybe Septuagint's exact. I'm not sure. What does 1 Peter 3.15 say? But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope you possess. But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Be not be, ah, there's the reference. But do not be terrified of them or be shaken, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Right. Got it. So, yeah, so you get his case, right? His case is that yeah. instead of saying honor Yahweh, he's saying honor Christ the Lord. Yeah, set Christ apart as Yahweh in your hearts is how he's reading that. Yeah. Yeah, it's another one of those great explicit passages that we just couldn't <laughs> read any other way. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, what first century Jew is going to read that verse and say, wow, I've misunderstood who Yahweh was this whole time. And now, thank you, Peter, for clarifying that. Because then he goes on and in verse 18, he says, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God, mm-hmm. somebody else, I would assume, by being put to death in the flesh, something God couldn't do. But by being made alive in the spirit, something that God did to him, in it he went and preached to the spirits in prison, and that's an interesting other topic. I mean, I, I kind of feel bad for the other case here, the other side, because like they're working so hard, and I respect that. Some of these arguments are just like so obscure, and so, they, they, like they took so much effort. I mean, you'd really have to go through the Bible with a fine-tooth comb and be like, all right, this is alluding to this text in the Old Testament. Let's go look it up. Oh, it's a text about Yahweh. Ergo, Jesus is Yahweh. Like, I, I see what they're doing, and, I, and I, I want to commend them for it, but at the same time, it's like, it's just not convincing, not even a little bit, because you, you're not allowing the New Testament authors to do something new with the Old Testament. And that's pretty clear what's happening here. Yes, there's an illusion. There's similar language. There, he's invoking this, don't be afraid of the, the your enemies. Instead, sanctify or make holy. Instead of Yahweh of hosts, it says Christ the Lord as holy in your in your hearts. And, you know, prefer, okay, yes, that's, that's what's happening. But there's not an equivalence here between Christ and Yahweh. And if there is, that's not the point Peter's making. Yeah. You know, like the yeah. weight of the sentence, once again, is not falling on Jesus as Yahweh. That's, that doesn't seem to be his point. So at most, you're going to get an accidental use, not like a theological. And, and it's like, okay, well, if the only uses we have are accidental, they're not, nobody's ever making this point, then it's like, what is this, a conspiracy? This is like the biggest revelation of Scripture, and it's only hinted at obscurely. Yeah. Come on. As James White says, it was revealed in the gutter between the Testaments and that everybody's just assuming it. So it doesn't have to be taught explicitly in the New Testament. It's not going to be there because they all figured it out before they started writing and they're just assuming it. It's like, wow, that's convenient. You can assume it's there and they can assume it's there and all these assumptions just square mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I mean, if you just go to the, the, the end of that chapter, three more verses... It says, this baptism, which now saves you, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of God, 
with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Like the end of the chapter distinguishes between them. Jesus is at the right hand of God. So the second person is at the right hand of the father. Is that how we're supposed to read that? Like what? Like it's just not there. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I think if I had to defend this, I would go to other passages that they didn't. You go use John one, you go use other things to try to put Jesus in, in the role of the, the creator or something yeah, yeah. and go back to the second century and try and camp there. I try and camp out with Justin Martyr and origin or something. And I, I wouldn't try to defend Nicaea. Yeah. Defending Nicaea is quite a burden, especially considering Nicaea, if if by Nicaea you mean the one in 325 and not the one in 381, (laughs) is not even Trinitarian, (laughs) which is hysterical. Let me say something on behalf of the Aryan brothers and sisters, the subordinationists who believe in pre-existence but not eternal pre-existence. And uh, this is a point that I think Patrick Novice made in some of his debates. And and that is like, look, this creator-creation divide thing is... I mentioned before, it's not biblical, and it doesn't even make sense. God has given the ability to create to all living organisms. Yeah. A stupid tree can create, all right? <laughs> now, it's not creating out of nothing, right? It's, it's creating according to the programming that God put on its DNA when it first was created or whatever. Sure. But it is reproducing. It is, it is generating life from itself. Two humans come together, they're capable of generating life. So, oh, well, that doesn't count as creation. Well, why not? A bird can make its nest. We can write music. Like, yeah. Creating doesn't mean that you're God. Like, what if what if we did with our technology, Brandon? What if we did get to a point where we could create a planet? Yeah. Or a a pocket universe. I don't know. I'm making stuff up, yeah. but like, you know, we do this in compute in the computer world all the time, right? We, we there are whole worlds invented in the human mind, right? Right. That, in or in Minecraft, and, exactly. <laughs> Roblox. That's my son. My <laughs> six year old can create. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. You know, if Jesus is the creator, which I, you know, I'm not in that camp, but I, I, I want to just for the brothers and sisters over there, uh, want to throw him a bone here. You know, like even if Jesus did pre-exist and Jesus did create the universe or God created through Jesus, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that Jesus is, in fact, divine in the same sense that the Father is divine. It doesn't. Yep. This creator-creation thing is not, that's just not biblical and it's not even logical. It's just, it's just yeah. rhetorical. It's thrown out and it's like, all right, well, if we can establish that Jesus created, then like, pff, ergo, he has to be God in the same way that the Father is God. And it just doesn't follow. Yeah, and you know, following along with some of your church history stuff, there were plenty of people in the first and second century that thought creation was done by... In fact, they assumed creation had to be done by somebody other than the one true God, right? <laughs> it, um, it was That's the true. Opposite. That's true, yeah. Like the one true God couldn't get his hands dirty doing it, so it had to be somebody else. That's a great point. Kind of the opposite of the argument that's being made here. Yeah. All right, let's go on. Two other passages, paying close attention to the time here. Uh, Number three, uh, Isaiah saw Yahweh. In Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 10, we see that Isaiah has a vision of Yahweh, and the Apostle John is going to cite that uh, vision, uh, or or rather allude to it in John chapter 12, verse 40 to 41, uh, where he cites Isaiah 6, 10, before declaring, quote, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, end quote. So who did Isaiah see? Well, Isaiah says he saw the angels declaring, holy is the Lord, Yahweh. Who does John say Isaiah saw? Well, he says he saw Jesus. And so allowing scripture to speak, we are forced, left with no option, but to conclude that Jesus is Yahweh. Let's pause it there. Isaiah sees Yahweh on the throne. The case is that in John 12, verse uh, 41, John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So we're talking about Jesus here. So the case is that John is saying Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. Now, here's the problem. It doesn't say on the throne in verse 41 here. It says he saw his glory. His glory, yeah. And let me tell you something. This is another one of these cases where you're just you're just failing to read the Gospel of John in a Johannine way. John uses glory in a more of a wide range than other people do. So he doesn't just use glory to refer to his resurrection, 
or his ascension, but even of his suffering. And as it turns out, in John 12, 40, we have a quotation from Isaiah 6, 10, and that is the mission of Isaiah. What uh, Samuel wants there to be here is from the first couple of verses of chapter 6, where Isaiah sees Yahweh on the throne. But John is quoting from the later verses of chapter 6, where it says, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, that, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Furthermore, the quote before that is from Isaiah 52, and that's in verse 38. So there's really two quotes here. Oh, sorry, Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our report, right? So that's the, the part in verse 38. So if you take the whole thing together, it says in verse 38, so that the word spoken by prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, he quotes Isaiah 53. Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, Isaiah 6.10. Then, in verse 41, Isaiah said these things, not this thing, not just chapter 6, but these things, Isaiah 6.10 and Isaiah 53.1, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What glory? It wasn't the glory of him sitting on the throne. That's not what John quoted here. The glory of the mission, right? It's, It's the glory of the mission, exactly. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. It's talking about how the people are not responding to Jesus. And this ultimately results in his arrest, trial, execution, resurrection, ascension. It's all, for John, it's all like you get on the train, you keep going. All these things are connected conceptually in his mind. Again, I, I see what he's doing. I respect it as a move. It's tactical. I get it. But it's like, if you're reading this, chapter 12 of John, I know I keep saying the same thing. If you're reading the the 12th chapter of John, and you're not coming to it with an agenda like, oh, show me how this can be used to prove Jesus is Yahweh. You're just reading. You're just like, all right, yeah, Isaiah said these things. He saw his glory. Okay. Like, where is Jesus Yahweh? You're just not... You're not going to get that unless you bring it to the text. It's not being read out of the text. It's being read into the text. Totally. This is an apologetic. It's explaining how it could possibly be that people would would not recognize the Messiah, right? That's that's the context, what you come away with. It's John explaining, ah, no, 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 this is prophesied. Nowhere does he say, I was prophesied that they would be God, and that's why they wouldn't recognize him. Like, he could have said that, right? No one anticipated a God-man, or no one anticipated... Uh, God to take on a human nature. There's ways John could have said that, and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to throw this out there for fun, in Isaiah 52, which is part of the 53 song, I don't know why they put the chapter break where they did, but in 52, 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The Septuagint, just to make a Samuel argument against Samuel, the Septuagint uses the verb of the word glory there. So if John's reading the Septuagint, or if he's familiar with that translation, then he could easily have glory on the mind after having just read the beginning of the Suffering Servant Song, Isaiah 52, 13, which then continues into 53, it's only two verses later, and mm-hmm. sees this as the first step in the ultimate glorification that, that comes. So we do actually have the the verb form of the word glory, doxa, uh, mentioned here. So again, I think context is still king. You read John 12. I challenge you, just read John 12 by itself. What is the point John is trying to make here? Is it that Jesus is Yahweh? No, it's that Jesus <laughs> no. is rejected. And Isaiah saw this ahead of time. Yeah. I admit, like, it's not how we would use the word glory, but this is the gospel of John. You have to like go onto his turf and accept yeah. his way of linking things together. Good to go to the next one? Yeah. Finally, there are, there are other passages uh, that deal specifically with the Exodus, fourthly, uh, and that is the we, we see Yahweh's involvement in the Exodus. Uh, Yahweh both saves his people and he also destroys uh, people, his people in Egypt because of their unbelief. And we see the apostles uh, citing this uh, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, was full, uh, the Apostle Paul says, quote, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, referring to the Exodus, and says, quote, and the rock was Christ, end quote. 
Who followed the people of Israel in the wilderness? The Apostle Paul says, Christ did. The Old Testament tells us Yahweh did. Let me pause it there. Quick uh, elevator pitch on that one, Brandon. What do you think? Oh, that Jesus is a rock? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, this is one of those passages I haven't really worked hard to be able to respond to the Trinitarian reading of. Okay. But at the same time, you did respond to it well. <laughs> because the point of the passage is that Jesus is the rock, okay? We know Jesus isn't literally a rock. So what is he doing here? This is obviously an allegorical reading. We're saying the rock represents Christ. And it says that followed them. It's yeah. not contemporaneous. It's not simultaneous. It followed them. So I, I don't think this is really a, a strong one for them. Uh, let's see the next one. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9? It says, quote, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. End quote. Who did the people of Israel put to test in the wilderness according to Deuteronomy? Yahweh. According to the New Testament, Jesus. Finally, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26 says, quote, He considered the reproach, by the way, this is speaking of Moses. Moses, it says, quote, Considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, end quote. Did Moses consider the reproach of Christ? But Christ didn't exist back then. Well, Jesus is Yahweh, and hence the scriptures regularly cross-reference, applying Jesus to the Yahweh passages of the Old Testament. Or the reproach of Christ is the same as the reproach of being a prophet, because Christ was a prophet, and just like Moses stood for God and then suffered from the hands of the government— so did Moses and Christ have a perfect parallel in that sense. Like Moses was outcast and he was fighting with Pharaoh. And again, I see the case that he's laying out here. I just don't think it's a biblical case in the sense that the Bible's making the case. He's using the Bible to make the case. The Bible's not making this case by itself. I would love to see some more about this, that verse 26, because it does, it does seem weird that Christ is referenced there. It seems really odd. Well, I mean, I, I think of the time when Jesus said, you know, when you're persecuted, leap for joy, for in such a way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. After the Christ event, you're looking back and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the reproach of Christ that Isaiah went through when, when he was persecuted or when Jeremiah was persecuted. That's the same kind of reproach to Christ. You know. So I, I guess that's as simple as I'm, I'm looking at it, but yeah. maybe there's more to it. In conclusion, we've presented three arguments, the argument from worship, the argument uh, from uh, explicit passages and the argument from replacement passages. And so one of these would be enough to demonstrate that Jesus is Yahweh. But I think in this case, we have an overwhelming uh, number of passages to demonstrate that. I look forward to seeing the replies and the opening statements from our opponent. Thanks again. Ah, the rhetoric. Overwhelming. <laughs> overwhelming explicit evidence. I feel underwhelmed. <laughs> I'm just going to say right now, I feel underwhelmed. I go back to my previous statement, just kind of winding down here. I'm so glad they didn't make the case well, because I don't know where that would leave me. Honestly, if Jesus is Yahweh, like, I don't even know what that means, other than modalism. And, like, the problem with modalism, since I'm going there, I might as well go there all the way. The problem with modalism is that Jesus and Yahweh have differences between them and disagreements between them. Uh, so a difference between Jesus and Yahweh, Mark 13, 32, the Father knows the day and the hour and the Son doesn't. So if Jesus just is Yahweh, then <laughs> we have a major problem here. And then the other one is Jesus says, not your, not my will, but yours be done. Let this cup pass from me, you know, in the garden. So we have a clear contradiction of wills here, and Jesus has to conform his will to the Father's will. So I don't think modalism works. Uh, I know there are probably some more sophisticated versions of modalism that that able to answer that. You know, from where I said, it just doesn't seem very convincing. I think it's much more convincing to say Jesus is Yahweh in the sense that he represents Yahweh and that Yahweh authorizes him as his agent, gives him some of his prerogatives, like to have knees bow to him and, and so on and so forth, and to, to receive glory and to receive worship that then is directed to Yahweh as the one who set the whole thing up, I think that makes perfect sense. So if you want to say Jesus is Yahweh in that sense, I'm good. If you want to say Jesus is Yahweh in a modalistic sense, like I understand it, but I think it has a lot of other problems. 
But I don't even know what Samuel and Kyle are saying. Like, I don't know how to conceive of Jesus as Yahweh in a Trinitarian sense. Like, I just don't even get it. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be uncharitable here. Like, I, I literally don't think there's anything in the box. They have to both say that it's a name of a person and then say it's the name of three persons. But there's only one Yahweh, Deuteronomy yeah. 6 4. Yeah. So yep. it's a problem. It's Look, a problem. It's, it's where they're driven by the acceptance of the term God being applied to men who, are, who God has endorsed, empowered, et cetera. Once you accept that, now you have to step back from Jesus as God because you're not proving anything by claiming that he's God. So now you got to try and say something else. And you know, it's interesting that the creeds don't use the divine name because then they'd run into the same problem. You know, yeah, it's uh, not for nothing that that Christianity moved away from this, or maybe we're just ignorant of it because it it allowed a lot of ambiguity to make moves like that they made in Nicaea and then Constantinople and then later that these guys are not able to make. And and this is uh, you know I don't I can't prove this, but I think this is also why a lot of evangelical translations or Protestant translations tend to shy away from using the name in their translations because it's like it just it just brings too much clarity. Yeah. And offers too much confusion to the, the reigning theory of the Trinity. Yeah. I, w- I would love to go back in time when that tradition, that the Jewish tradition of not using the name began and say, hey, in a few thousand years, <laughs> this is going to create a real problem. So, like, can we still be respectful of God? You know, we won't use the name in vain, but can we still use it? Because I think it might help a lot of confused Gentiles in the future. Yeah, it's too bad. Look, it's it's history conspiring to allow what's actually kind of an improbable outcome, which is that Jesus appears, he says he's God's agent, like he's he's sent from God, that God empowers him, gives gives him all the words to say. He does he doesn't do anything of himself. And somehow in a few centuries later, he's being given the full power and equality with the one God and 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 we have the Trinity. Like if you think about what all needs to happen, there are a lot of dominoes that have to fall just right to get that to occur. And look, that's why I love the the argument on the other side that you know our, our guys made in their opening. You know, they give seven arguments just that are just I think killer that are super strong that do have explicit support from scripture. They can do that because that's what the text originally meant. And uh, unfortunately for you know for Samuel and Kyle. They've got to defend something that they're saddled with as a mistake of history. And so you have to make an argument from worship. You know, it's it's like the hands move that Rob Bowman makes. They're all implied arguments of, of implication that because he receives honor and glory and all these all these things, you know, receives worship, that therefore he must be God. Well, you wouldn't have to do that if if the text were actually explicit. I think they're great guys. They did a great job. It's just their position is so untenable that it it does cause a reaction in me. And I you know, and I apologize if I've been a little too critical or too harsh here cuz you know, I I recognize the difficulty of their position. You know, they're arguing for Jesus as Yahweh in a trinitarian context. Like I wouldn't wish that on my enemies. It's just it's just like <laughs> it's just really leaving yourself with like nothing left to say. Uh and we saw this with the Michael Brown Dale Tuggy debate where Dale just kept pushing him and asking him questions, and eventually Michael Brown landed in total heresy. I mean, what did he say? Like, the Son of God never died? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's just like, and in this debate, as it, as it progressed, it's like, well, the Father has a God. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these are inevitable <laughs> conclusions when you're like, just start applying a little logic to the theory. And we're not criticizing God here. We're criticizing your model of God that you're imposing yeah. on Scripture. Well, this has gone long enough. Any uh, final thoughts here, Brandon, before we close it down? I hope both Dustin and Will have chances to, to debate in the future. thought they did a great job. Yeah. Um, I think it's good for the movement to have this kind of stuff on the record, and I'm glad the UCA is is supporting that and that you know Dustin and Will are willing to do that. Hopefully people will continue to benefit from this for a long time, and there's more to come. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. And if you, dear listener... If you have not yet uh, listened to the debate, hey, go listen to the rest of it because uh, there's a lot more we didn't cover. There's also all that Q&A at the end, another 30 minutes. Brandon, you got the first question in there, so uh, people can go <laughs> listen to it if they want to hear your question. But uh, that's it for today. Thanks for joining me. 
Well, that brings this conversation to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 492, Refuting Samuel Nassan's Case That Jesus Is Yahweh, and leave your feedback. A few folks did that last week on episode 491, where we discussed the opening statement of Dr. Kyle Essery, and I'd like to read those out to you. Bill Schlegel wrote in, Hey guys, enjoyed your reactions. Great job showing the inconsistencies, failures, and outright obscureness of the Trinitarian arguments. One pushback, if I may. I think it would be pretty easy to show a biblical distinction between the creator and the created. We could go to Genesis 1 and see what is created and that God is not part of that. Or to scriptures that describe the eternality of God in contrast with created things and beings. It would not be too difficult to show biblically that the creator is not the creation. The distinction between the created and the creator is what we as one God believers should insist on. God does not become man. God does not become a created thing, a created being. In fact, the distinction between the creator and the created destroys the very argument the Trinitarians wanted to make. Of course, they are confused on what it means to worship, but by their definition of worship, they then deny that Jesus is a human being, let alone that he has a human nature. They say, you can only worship God. By their own definition, they deny that Jesus is human. Here's the syllogism they espouse without realizing or admitting so. One, no human should be worshipped. Two, Jesus is worshipped. Three, Jesus is not human. Thanks again. Well, Bill, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what I said in this episode about the creator-creation distinction. It's not something that those of us with more of a Sassanian Christology really need to do business with because we're not looking at Jesus as the creator of the Genesis creation. But there are a lot of our subordination as brothers and sisters who do hold to pre-existence and do believe that Jesus was involved in the Genesis creation and that he is still, even though he played a role in that creation, he is not God in the same sense that the Father is God. I think we could also throw in Genesis 1.26 into the batch, especially the NET note, which identifies the angels as the us who are in some sense, some limited sense, involved in the creation of human beings, which would also be another case of calling to question this idea that to be a creator just therefore implies that you are eternal and of the same substance as the Father, which I don't think follows at all. And that's not my view anyhow, but I just want to make space for that view among the Unitarian Christian camp. But I hear what Bill's saying here. What Bill's saying is that if you have this strong creator-creation distinction, Jesus, from a Trinitarian perspective, is somehow both. And uh, this would be one of the many contradictions, not really just paradoxes. To be created and the only creator of all creation at the same time does generate quite a bit of tension. Uh, and so if Jesus is human in any sense whatsoever, according to the typical creator-creation distinction argument used by Trinitarians, then Jesus should not be worshipped because Jesus is human. Uh, and if Jesus is not human, he can be worshipped. Then we're lost in docetism. He just appears to be human, but he's not a real human. And I don't think anybody wants to go down that road. John Bradley responds to Bill Schlegel and says, some Trinitarians might say that in worshipping Jesus, they are actually worshipping the divine nature, which in reality is the Father's concentrated indwelling spiritual presence, which slash who was with both the earthly Jesus and in the resurrected Jesus. When Thomas said to the resurrected Jesus, My God, he was probably referring to the Father, the only true God of John 17.3, who indwelt the pre-resurrection Christ and the post-resurrection Christ. To paraphrase a remembered quote from David Jenkins, a former bishop of Durham in the Church of England, quote, Almighty God, our Father, is in heaven. Jesus, however, is God for me, in that in Jesus I see the Almighty God, and the Holy Spirit is Almighty God in me. So this is the idea that God indwells Christ, so far as I understand what John is remarking here in response to Bill's comments. 
God is in Christ. And I, I think that is a really, really powerful way of thinking about incarnation from a biblical Unitarian perspective, that we do have God indwelling flesh. Of course, God has always indwelt flesh to a lesser degree in the prophets and the priests and even some of the kings of Israel, like King David, who said, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me in Psalm 51. So I think God has always desired to indwell people. It's just that with Christ, as with Adam and Eve originally, he's able to do it in a maximally unencumbered way because of the lack of sin. There's no impediment to God's indwelling and influence in the human being. Of course, the human beings still retain their own free will, but with Christ, God indwells him in an incredibly powerful sense, able to inspire speech and empower deeds that would be unthinkable if Jesus were just operating on his own power. So thanks for commenting in on that. Troy writes in, Troy Salinger. Hey, Sean and Brandon, great analysis of Kyle's opening. I wrote an article about a year ago dealing with the Palach claim from Daniel 7, and I would like you both to read it. It's not a long read. Here's the link. He provides a link there. On the last episode, I put a link to it in this episode as well, so you could just take a look in your phone if you're that's how you're listening to this podcast and find that link. It's the first link under notes. Uh, and I just wanted to read a quick excerpt out of Troy's excellent article on Palach. He says, When we look at the Targums, we find that Palach is used many times to translate the Hebrew word Abad throughout Avad throughout the Pentateuch. In this regard, it is used many times with reference to serving men as well as serving God. Here are a few passages in which Palach refers to serving men in the Targums. And then he lists off tons of verses. Uh, Genesis 14.4, 15.14, Exodus 1.13, 14.12, Leviticus 25.40, Deuteronomy 15.12, 20.11, and so on and so forth. I just listed a couple of them here. Just to mention a few, there are many more, but this should suffice to prove the point. The evidence clearly shows that the meaning of palach is not limited to service rendered to a deity, but includes service rendered to people. Thank you for pointing that out, Troy. It's an excellent point. Just in case you're not aware, the Targums are Aramaic translations of the Old Testament. Some of them are looser than others, more like paraphrases, and these are Targums or Targumim were read in synagogues after the people could no longer understand classical Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, and so that they could still understand the meaning of Scripture. So Palach is one of these words that only shows up ten times, as we mentioned last time, in the Aramaic portions of the Old Testament, of which there are very few. However, it shows up many, many, many times in the Targumim, and so by looking at those, what Troy's pointing out is that the word just means serve. It can mean serve to God as a deity, or it can mean serve to just a landlord whose farm you're working. He, Troy goes on and he says, Now someone is sure to respond to this data by saying that the Targumic usage of Palach is irrelevant to the discussion because in the inspired scriptures it has a specialized meaning. And we know this because in all of its occurrences in the Old Testament it refers to a deity. But this is simply special pleading. Why should we believe that Palach acquired a special limited meaning within Scripture that it didn't have in everyday usage within the culture and time in which it was written? If God chose to communicate his word within a certain culture and language, why would he change the meaning of a specific word in that language? Is he trying to confuse us? Also, the assertion that Palach is used exclusively in reference to deity in the scripture reveals the circular reasoning of the apologists. Of the ten occurrences of Palach in the Old Testament, only eight of them are clearly in reference to a deity, while the remaining two, Daniel 7.14 and 7.27, are ambiguous and could be using Palach with reference to serving men. But the apologists already holding the presupposition that Christ is deity, simply assume that 7.14 fits this supposed limitation of the meaning of Palach. 7.27 is probably even more ambiguous in that Palach could refer either to the Most High or the people of the Most High. The second option is reflected in the following versions. 
the CEV, the CJB, ERV, ESV, UK, EXB, GNT, ICB, TLB, MSG, NOG, NCV, NRSV, OJB, and RSV. Whew, Troy, nice uh, list of Bible versions there. He continues, So if we don't just assume that the Son of Man figure is a deity figure, and if we take verse 27 to be referring to the people of the Most High, then there is no reason to assume that Palach has a specialized meaning in the Old Testament, but that it carries the same meaning found in common usage. So we see the apologist case begin to come apart at the seams. Thanks so much, Troy, for doing the hard work of chasing down those references in the Targums in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, if you want to know more about Troy Salinger, you want to read this article, check out his blog, letthetruthcomeoutblog.wordpress.com, or I have, a, as I mentioned, a, sh- a link to this particular article in the show notes. He goes into much more detail and also handles the sometimes cited reference to the Greek word letrevo and what that entails in Daniel 7.14 as well. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. Thanks so much to those of you who are doing that, especially those on a monthly basis. It really helps a lot. As far as our next episode goes, we're going to be getting back to our early church history class, which is going to start looking at the Constantinian shift, a huge moment in church history that needs special attention. Also, if you want to know more about the debate, I encourage you to take a look at it. I embedded the YouTube video in the show notes for this episode. And also, Dr. Dustin Smith over at Biblical Unitarian Podcast is posting all the different parts of the debate for you to listen to if you prefer audio. Uh, So I encourage you to check out the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as well. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.